reading for the whole church, and it's a, pretty much a whole chapter. <laughs> nice and short. Six verses, four to the end. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And these words that I commanded you today shall be on your heart. Teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk on and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to you, did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then it's the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Him you shall serve, gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst and is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you off from the face of the earth. Test as you tested him at Massa, your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well for you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out the enemies from before you as the Lord promised. And when your son asks you in time to come the meaning of these testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you, then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out from Egypt with his mighty hand. Wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. Bring us in and give us a land that he swore to our fathers. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good, all, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day, and that it will be righteousness for us. If we are careful to do all this commanded before the Lord our God as he commanded us. Applause, but no one else did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was long. Once again, I find myself wishing that I could preach on love or something like that, but we're going to talk on liturgy today. Um, uh, so a little bit different from what I think would, would be a fun topic to preach on. Uh, but we've been doing Celebrating Sunday, and we're going to talk a little bit about liturgy, but it, probably in a slightly different way. We're not Catholic or, or Anglican or have a long tradition of very strong kind of liturgies. Um, but what I want to do is I kind of want to give us an idea of why kind of thinking about liturgy is important and then talk a little bit about the Harvest City Sunday liturgy, which I know we don't really call liturgy. Liturgy, wow. If I say that word a lot, it's going to stop becoming a little bit. Anyway, um, so talk a little bit about it and why we do what we do on, on a Sunday. Um, you know, so last week, hopefully, 
the importance of Sunday was highlighted, why Sunday has been important. For 2,000 years of church history, uh, the church has gathered on a Sunday, on the Lord's Day, the day of victory, uh, the day of hope, uh, uh, as we've uh, mentioned, you know, the day of, of wonder. Um, but today, we want to kind of like now drill down on why we do what we do on a Sunday. Now, um, as uh, if any of you watched our reel on Instagram, you'll check it out, say we're making reels now. Um, but if you watched our reel on Instagram, you always said, I have a problem. Um, and part of my problem is, is, I don't know if you guys have this problem, but sometimes what you know and what you do is different. So I know I should exercise. I know it. I know I'm going to be healthier. Like I'm 39, getting to 40. Like, I wake up in the morning, I can't believe how tense my body is. It just didn't used to be like this. And I know if, like, I did yoga or something, I would probably feel better and more flexible. And, and this, I know. And then I do it once, okay? Except I wake up the next morning, and I'm stiff, and I'm sore, and I'm painful. And I'm like, this is a terrible idea. Never exercising again. Um, or maybe you've been like this, you go to like that church conference and someone's preached something and it's been amazing. You're like, I'm going to pray an hour a day. Like, look what happens. You wake up that first morning, you wake up earlier, it's like quarter to five. You're like, that will give me enough time. I'm going to spend some time in prayer in this. You do that and it happens once, never again. Um, and that's often because what we know and what we do it's often two different things. Carr said this, which kind of this philosophy is, I think, therefore I am, which is, which is this idea that we're totally rational beings, that, uh, as uh, James K. Smith says this, that we are brains on a stick, that we are very rational, that if we can just change our minds, uh, if we can just get knowledge, then uh, we will be able to live things out. But um, what I guess what the postmodern era has kind of rebelled against is, is this idea realizing that we're not just brain, we don't just think rationally. Now advertisers have known this all along, that we don't just think rationally. You know, they, they sell us a dream. Uh, and even though you know you're like, oh, that thing's not going to chew, over and over again on Instagram, you're like, I have to buy that shoe. I don't know why I need to buy that shoe. It's too expensive. It's ridiculous. But you end up doing it. Um, and that's because we aren't just purely rational beings. Um, the Greeks had this idea. It was called telos, uh, which is essentially that we all live towards our vision of the good life. That we all live towards this vision, this understanding, this belief that we all live towards what we believe is going to make us happy or uh, help us be better people. We live towards, we are people in motion, we are people moving towards uh, our vision of uh, the good life. Um, and I'll... Uh, I must admit, I'm indebted to a guy called James K. Smith for some of his understanding on this. He wrote a book, You Are What You Love, uh, which is a really good book. Um, and then a guy called David Brooks uh, wrote a book called The Social Animal, which I think was just really helpful in framing some of this stuff. 
But James K. Smith says this. He says, the center of gravity of the human person is located not in the intellect, but in the heart. Why? Because the heart is the existential chamber of our love. It is our loves that orientate us towards some ultimate end, know some end, or believe in some telos. More than that, I long for some end. I want something, and I want it ultimately. It is my desires that define me. In short, you are what you love. Uh, so what James K. Smith says is, is he says you, what you want is, is a better understanding of who you are than what you think. What you ultimately desire is uh, better in terms of understanding who we are and how we act than just what uh, we think about. Uh, David Foster Wallace in his uh, famous commencement address that he gave. He said this, graduating class, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. Here's a secular, postmodern novelist writing about this idea, like we are in one sense, what we worship, we all worship, we all want something, and that thing, that thing that we desire is the thing when asked what is most important. Uh, what is most important? Jesus, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, the neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. A little bit at this just now. But Jesus, when he calls his disciples to something, he doesn't call them to more knowledge. He doesn't call them to more intellect. He doesn't tell them, listen, what you need is you need to know more. He says you need to love more. The greatest commandment is a commandment to love not to know. Um, and Jesus is taking that from the passage that Miles read, Deuteronomy 6. The greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. There is a part where thinking plays into this, but actually God is wanting us 
to shape our loves, shape, shape our ultimate ones. Um, John Mark Comer says this, he says, the ultimate uh, end of Christian maturity is that we say we are wanting to become like Christ, he says. What are we saying we want to be? He says what we're ultimately saying we want to be is that we want to be a person who is able to love God and people completely. But the true measure of that test is the measure of um, what it says in Matthew chapter 5, which is to love enemy. As Jesus said at the end of, of Matthew chapter 5, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What is that perfection? Not just that you love God and people, but the ultimate end is that you are able to love your enemy. We know we have become the disciples of Christ when love of God so grows within us uh, that we love God, people, and even our loves. He wants to shape our desires. He wants to direct us, the telos of our lives. He wants us to be directed towards his vision. Important. Um, a guy called Toza, um, when, when I was a, a young Christian, I was uh, really influenced by this quote by Toza. He says, it may be said without qualification that every man is as holy and as full of the spirit as he wants to be. He may not be as full as he wishes he were, but he is most certainly as full as he wants to be. Now, I love that passage. Like, that, for me, was like mind-blowing. When I, uh, I read that about maybe 20 years ago, uh, when I read that, it was like an explosion in my mind. It wasn't just an explosion in my mind because I was charismatic going, wow, I can be as full of God as I want to be. And it was an explosion in my mind because I realized that there is often a difference between what we wish for and what we want. There's a difference between what we wish for or what we think we want and what we really want. There's a difference between that. And, and that difference often plays in our own lives and how we live. So I wished I was healthy, exercised a lot, had a certain looking body, etc., etc. I wished that, but what I really want is to sleep in in the morning. Okay? But what I really want is that McDonald's burger. Like, like that's, <laughs> don't judge me, Miles, calm down. Um, there, there's often a difference between what we wish we, we want and sometimes the reality plays into our own lives and our own spirituality. What we really want to say is that we want God, we want Him. We want to live our lives directed towards Him. But there may be other things that may be, end up just being a wish. And what we really want may be recognition. Fame, success, power, money, beauty, or whatever uh, some of the things that David worshipping. Um, and the challenge comes in how do we change some of our deepest desires? If that is the case, if the case is that we live from within, not just within our minds, if we live from within, if we live by our vision of the good life, I tell us, if we live by the direction of our loves, what we really worship, how do we change that? How do we 
reshape our affections? How do we reshape our loves? And that's where liturgy comes in. So um, I know someone asked me this week, what does liturgy mean? Uh, the actual definition is the form, formularies, or arrangements of public worship um, is, is kind of the, the dictionary definition of liturgy. Um, liturgy, to me, is the things that we repeatedly do that do something to us. Liturgy is the things that we repeatedly do that do something to us, that affect us, that change us. Now, we have cultural liturgies that affect us, that, um, um, de- that change some of our, our deepest desires. I don't know about you, but I don't know if any one of us have s- consciously decided that materialism is going to be the best way to live. Probably none of us woke up with kid, as kids going like, if I just have more money and more stuff and that new thing, like if I just have all of that, then I'm going to be the happiest version of myself. In fact, we probably all know that that is not true, that if I just get more stuff, then I'm going to be happy. If I just get those new shoes or uh, et cetera, et cetera. But what happens is we have these cultural liturgies that happen year after year, uh, Black Friday, the this excess of, of stuff that is built into our annual kind of calendars where uh, there's all these sales and they put balloons up and they make it like this great celebration. And you're there and you're like, I need something. I just need it. If I get this, like, then I am going to, to or I'm going to have a good Christmas if I get the right present under the tree. Or, you, I mean, we even have things like, like, the overemphasis of success, uh, you know, the going to varsity, the getting of A's, the, the celebrating of awards, the, the things that over and over reinforce inside of us. If I'm just successful, happy. Or what about this cultural liturgy, is, uh, which now is our cell phones? Anyone do this? Wake up in the morning and, and look at their cell phone? That could be me. I do that. It's terrible. Um, but cell phones, the day after day, uh, looking at cell phones is doing something to us. Francis Shan, in his, uh, um, in his sermon at the Passion uh, Conference in 2017, this, he, says, he says, the problem with our generation, the generation influenced by the cell phone, the generation that has gone through the, the liturgy of the internet and, and looking at daily social media, waking up and looking at our phones and posting stuff, etc. He says the problem with our generation is this, is that we value our thoughts way. One of the things that cell phones have done to us is the liturgy is it's made us the most important people in the world. We now have access to information whenever we want. We uh, can share our opinion to whoever we want to. We can uh, put things out there. It's this liturgy that over and over is reinforcing inside of us that we are the center of the world. And then, of course, we read stuff like, you deserve it, you know, live your truth, etc., uh, etc., et that we look at 
social media just reminding us over and over again, you are the most important person today. Yes, I am. Thank you, phone. Thank you. Um, as opposed to, think about this, how often what would happen is think about how cell phones are changing us right now. Back in the day, if you grew up in my home, uh, kids would not speak at the table. Now, there was something unhealthy about that. But, uh, so I'm not, I'm not advocating for that. Um, but this first, kids would speak last, and you would, you, you would go on. There was like this, this um, almost way of life that would teach you a sense of humility, that you're not the most important person in the room, that your opinion maybe is not the most important opinion. Um, but cell phones have adjusted that. It's a cultural liturgy that is shaping our desires. It's shaping our wants. It's shaping our vision of the good life. It, we are. Cultural liturgies, these things that we repeatedly do that do something to us. Now, why do we have liturgies in the church? Essentially, for the same reason. Liturgies are to shape the direction, our orientation. It is to shape our attentiveness towards some things. So year after year in the church calendar, people would look uh, in traditional churches, you would come to Easter and you would uh, look at the death and resurrection of Christ. You would go to Christmas and you would look at uh, the birth and new creation. You would go through different parts of the, the calendar looking at different aspects to make sure that over and over was reinforced, was put in place um, these towards spiritual things, towards God. Liturgy is one of the ways in which we shape how we live, what we desire, where our attention is drawn towards things. Uh, there has been a uptick in the thought of liturgy, just uh, in, in culture we don't really call it that, we call it habits. So, you know, think about the rise of books like, um, you know, Charles Duhigg's uh, book, The Power of Habits, or, or James Clear and Atomic Habits, there's this new kind of like focus that people are realizing that habits shape so much um, that sometimes if you want to change things, if you want to change some of your desires, what you need to do is not just change your thinking, you need to change the actual rhythms of your life. Um, so I want to look just briefly at uh, our Sunday liturgies over and over again, one of the things that you realize is how liturgical they were about getting love of God into them. So what do they say in Deuteronomy 6? Like, what, it, what must you do? You must pray these twice a day. You must tie these things, you know, you're going to wear a certain thing. You're going to put something in your home. You're going to pray this prayer. Uh, in Jewish tradition, they would say that it was called the Shema, that passage of Scripture. They would say that passage two times a day. 
this over and over again. It's this liturgical thing, like how do we get this in? You're going to tell it to your kids. You're going to tell them the story. You're going to do it over and over again. Not only that, but we're going to have these festivals. We're going to have Passover. We're going to have Pentecost. We're going to have these different things that over and over again orientate our hearts, our minds, our desires towards God. Can we go on to that? So in our liturgy, a few things. Um, the first thing that we do is we do worship or prayer, worship and prayer, um, uh, which uh, we've done this morning. But what, what does worship and prayer do? What is the purpose of, of worship and prayer? It's, it's us learning how to be attentive towards God. We sing songs, we pray prayers, we do that to direct our attention, to direct our orientation towards God. Uh, you just have to go through the Psalms. There's a whole book of the Bible dedicated towards worship and prayer. It's the Psalms, the, the songs and prayers of, of the people of God. Uh, and as you go through Psalms, it's so much of what it's about is in the midst of everything going on, us using songs and using scriptures to direct our attentiveness, to direct our attention towards God, to who he is, to what he's doing, etc., etc. When we come together and we sing songs and we pray prayers, uh, when we do that on a Sunday, what we are doing is in the midst of everything that's going on in our lives, we're stopping and we are being attentive to the one who created us. That is the purpose uh, in, in some sense of the songs and the prayers in the liturgy of the church. It's to direct our attention. It's to change our orientation. Maybe during the week, we've been so consumed with a whole bunch of things, but we're going to stop, we're going to pray, we're going to sing, we're going to direct those songs towards God who created us. We are reorientating ourselves. We are being attentive towards God. And what this part of the liturgy guards us against is secularism. It guards us against the temptation that we can like, dissect our lives between God and the, the idea of separating church and state, you know. So you want to have one space in which God doesn't exist and another space in which God does exist. But what we do when we pray and what what we do when we worship is we are guarding ourselves against this idea that God just exists in a certain space. We are bringing our attentiveness towards him. We are guarding ourselves from living a life. It's... Um, but he says this, he says, the great temptation of the church is, to, is that we become functional atheists. We become secular. We become people who say we believe in God, but we live day after day like we don't reorientate ourselves to live in a world in which God saturates. The second thing that we do is, is the preaching of the word or the reading of the scriptures uh, as uh, um, uh, one of the, as Paul writes, he was like, you know, don't neglect the public reading of Scripture. Don't neglect the word being spoken or the word being preached. 
Now, what preaching does, it's not, it's not just being attentive to our intellects. That's a temptation that we have. Good preaching is not to tickle our minds. It's to move our hearts. Um, and good preaching is helping us being attentive to being obedient to God. At the end of a sermon, which some people have called the greatest sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of a sermon, what does he say? Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice it's like a wise man who built his house on the rock the rain came down the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who came down the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great preached on a Sunday it's not just to help us become more theological. The purpose is to help us become more obedient. Of the scriptures coming. Obedience is always the intention when God speaks. When God speaks, he expects obedience. He wants us to reorientate our lives towards him. The preaching of the word is us being attentive towards being obedient uh, to God. That's why we preach on Sunday. Church is not a theological house. It's not a seminary. We're not here just to, hey, look, we know everything about church history, etc., etc. It's that we come to hear God speaking to us and has he does, we respond in God's us. I, the liturgical practice of preaching God's us against A. Smith, which is the idea that if we just know more, um, if we know it, then we've lived it. Um, if we know it, then we are okay. We're just trying to be the most theologically astute people around. And I don't know if you've ever been in spaces like that where, um, you know, you have a couple of Christians and, uh, um, and they're having a talk and in that talk, it's almost like they're having a little banter session to see who can trump each other with the most knowledge of scripture. Have you ever seen one of those? It's like, oh, you know that, but I know this, you know, like, boom, oh, that isn't what's uh, Calvin said, or, you know, like, what it, whatever it is, you, you, we can often live in an idea um, where it's all just about the accumulation of knowledge. What good preaching should do is it should challenge us that knowledge is not the ultimate response to the word. The response to the word is obedience. I was uh, having a conversation with someone once, and they said to me, they were like, I have read the Bible every single day for the last 30 years. And I knew them. And I was like, that's not a great testimony for reading the Bible every day for 30 years. Like, you're really grumpy. Um, sorry if that's being too harsh. Ultimately, the liturgical word of the word, the reading of the scriptures, the hearing of preaching is not calling us to be attentive to theology. It's calling us to be attentive to obedience. The sacraments 
which, uh, as we know, is breaking of bread. We're going to do that just now. Um, also, baptism, uh, which are the two main sacraments instituted in Christianity. Uh, the sacraments is calling us to be attentive to the work of Christ, to be attentive to the work of Christ. Uh, he summarizes Jesus's uh, talking of, about breaking of bread, and it says, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. One commentator said this. He said, the reason why Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, is because of the human tendency to forget. So over and over, we have the bread and the cup that is instituted in the church all across the world. And week after week in different spaces in the world, people get up and they go to the bread and they go to the cup and they break it and they drink it. And why are they doing that? Because we have a human tendency to forget Christ's remembrance of me. That week after week, as the church worships as the church preaches, but as the church gathers around sacrament, as it gathers around these things of baptism and breaking of bread, we are being attentive to what Jesus has done, which means what the sacraments do is, as Eugene Peterson says, is they guard us against moralism. They guard us against moralism because what happens is when we get up, and we will get up and break bread just now, when we get up and we break bread, you're going to have to break bread next to someone who you may think is not holy like you are, who is not as good as you are, a person who you look down upon and you think, yeah, if only they got their lives right. And what you're doing when you're breaking bread is you are remembering that we feast off, our same, off the same source of salvation. Not my moral activity, but the work of of Christ. One of the powers of sacraments throughout the ages was how it would break down class barriers and race barriers because people would have to feast off the same bread of our salvation over and over is reminded when we break the bread and drink the work of Christ. It guards us against moralism. It guards us against this idea that we can just be good people. We, as a church, want to be attentive to Christ. I'm almost finished. Sorry, there's been a lot. You guys okay? Uh, this is one we're not really good at doing. Um, people here aren't good at doing because we're not really good at incorporating it into our Sunday service. But that is giving. So week after week, the church has given. Uh, in, in Corinthians, uh, in 2 Corinthians 8, it talks about the church gathering on the first day of the week, the, the Lord's Day, and they would set aside amounts that they've determined to give. The church is given. Jesus spoke about giving uh, more than almost every other topic. Uh, and, and I haven't put it on you, it's a long passage, but in the Sermon on the Mount, I know we've quoted that quite a bit, but in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter uh, 6, what you get to the end, you get to the end is our anxiety is often linked to our inability to trust God with material things. Uh, and what giving does 
is it causes us to be attentive towards trusting God. More liturgical elements, that isn't always the case. Sometimes we give uh, because we're expecting something in return. But giving, the intention is to direct our attentiveness towards trusting God. Uh, giving to put our full and complete trust in God. And this guards us against materialism. It guards us against materialism, against this idea that our safety comes from the physical material things that we have. If we have to be honest, probably 99% of us here in this room feel more safe when we've got money in the bank. We just feel more secure, probably a little bit happier when we know we've got a little bit of, uh, um, you know, cushion. Uh, when we've got a little bit of a cushion that's going to last us, when we're not worried about how we're going to make it tomorrow, we feel more secure. We, feel, uh, we can often feel more happier. Um, but giving guards us against the false idol of materialism, put our trust in God. And the final thing that we do is that, and this is not part of our actual service per se, but it's what happens before and after is fellowship. Uh, it's the talking. It's, we do that in life groups as well. But the having a cup of coffee, chatting in a circle, getting to know uh, people, it's fellowship. And fellowship is directing our attention away from ourselves. It's being attentive to others. Good fellowship is not just about you. It's about being attentive to others. Uh, and the scripture says, Hebrews 10, verse 25, it says this. It says, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another uh, and all the more as you see the day approaching, which guards us against individualism. Uh, fellowship guards us against the idea that we ourselves are the most important, that we can live on our own, we can do it all by ourselves. I'm going to end with a story. Uh, then Heather's going to come up and, and read us the Apostles' Creed. Um, and we're going to read the, the, the Apostles' Creed just to 100 years. The church has put down the Apostles' Creed that all churches across the world that we believe are orthodox has held uh, and then we're going to break bread. Tells a story about, he wrote a book called The Road to Character. He was on the road for 99 days consecutively. Uh, so for 99 days, he was traveling around America, giving talks and signing books. And, uh, and, and during the time when he was writing the book, he had lost his marriage. So he ended up just being completely absorbed in work, wanted to be successful, became uber successful with the road to character. He was you know, a New York Times uh, opinion successful, 99 days consecutively on the road, promoting his book, etc., etc. But he says, he says the downside of the success, which many people don't know, is that for 42 days of those 99 days, he ate him, 42 consecutive days, he ate every meal by himself. Did not have it. At that point, as the tour grew on and grew on and his success was become more and more known, this pit of loneliness began to consume him. 
Uh, and he realized at that point that something was wrong with the way that he was orientating his life, that he had orientated everything towards his vision of the good life, the, his vision of success, uh, and that when he got it, he found that all is what was waiting to him, waiting for him at the other side of success was a bottomless pit of despair and changing his habits and his way of life, redirecting how he lived towards living for Sunday. The weekly, the coming to church day, is because what we do shapes what we it's not just what we think that shapes it. It's what we do that shapes it. It's the liturgical over and over. It's the, it's the deep and profound meaning behind what we do that begins to shape who we are. And that's why we want to celebrate Sunday. Why Sundays are important. Why coming to church is important are important because in them away from ourselves to be more attentive to God to obedience to the work of Christ his death and resurrection towards others and towards how we trust him can I pray pray that by your Holy Spirit and reshape who we are um, I think probably every one of us, in some measure or another, struggles with the tension between what we think and what we do. And probably all of us, to some measure, killerly struggle with that when it comes to you. We give ourselves to you as we read the scriptures and pray and hear your word and uh, reshape our desires, reshape our loves. Reshape our longings. Reshape mine, I pray. Me, Lord, to be more attentive to you. I don't just want to be consumed with ourselves or didn't consume by you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would draw us by your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Bread. I've asked Heather to come and read the Apostles' Creed, and then we'll break bread together. Peter of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the everlasting life everlasting. Amen. Shall we stand? What, what we can do is on that side over there is the table, and uh, there's bread there, and there's uh, not wine, sorry guys. Um, but what, maybe what you can do is, is make your way across there, um, 
and break bread. I, I love the idea of bread being broken. I, I used to hate those, uh, those little communion cup wafer things. Man, I used to hate them. Bread was broken and eat together as a community. So make your way there. Go break bread and get the cup. <laughs>